0: Welcome to The Forest Garden, your guide to transforming your organic gardening practice into a holistic edible forest garden landscape. If you have an interest in sustainable design, ecology or regenerative agriculture, then this podcast is for you. At the time that this podcast episode was recorded during the summer of 2021, the lit and fire in British Columbia had just occurred. By the time this episode had been fully edited, Flash floods were springing up overnight in Germany, China, and the United States, while the bootleg fire in southern Oregon continues to rage. These recent events only make the content of this episode more relevant, so stay tuned and enjoy the episode.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Forest Garden Podcast with Ben Bishop and Mike Amato. We've got another episode here for you, hopefully interesting and exciting and informative. That's what we try to bring to every episode. But we're going to cover some ground today talking about uh, climate change and specifically how it affects growing plants and growing edible plants as gardeners and farmers and landowners. And there's a lot to cover. The way I like to think about climate issues is you have climate mitigation, which is you know, strategies to help reverse climate change when we talk about carbon sequestration and removal of greenhouse gases from the atmosphere by using plants and agriculture, which is you know, definitely fantastic to, to think about on a large scale. But then there's you know, the climate adaptation issue where you know, we're going to start seeing destabilizing climate in, in many regions of the world, not just warming, not just cooling, just destabilized. That can really affect plant life and that can really affect food production too. And so that's kind of what we're gonna be focusing this episode about today. And just to give some context uh, about climate change in general, the situation is getting fairly dire. I don't wanna to be too doom and gloom about it, but in 2018, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, released a report uh, basically saying we've got till about 2030, year 2030, to reduce carbon emissions by by half of, of what they are uh, i think half of what they were in the year 2000 uh, by year 2050 reduce carbon emissions pretty much entirely uh, and if we don't do that we're going to see a increase in the temperature of above 1.5 degrees celsius by the end of the by the end of the century so by 2100 and so I, we're definitely on track for above that right now i think maybe we're on track for Three to six degrees, uh, unfortunately, and so, uh, which doesn't sound like a whole lot. For you know, you might not even be able to detect a three-degree change, and if someone changes your thermostat, but, you know, for plant life and for biology and organisms all around the world, that's that could mean devastation and a complete change of ecosystems. And so, it's a really big deal, and there's a lot that that needs to be done. If you're interested in in strategies to help reduce impact or mitigate climate change, you can visit Project Drawdown. I really like the the work that they're doing. And then also the the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has a lot of great information as well. So that aside, we're going to be talking about the other half, the climate change adaptation strategies, which basically says whether we do this... whether we're able to achieve our goals or not, you know, we're going to probably see some change in climate. And some of that's natural, but you know, a lot of it will be anthropogenic or man-made. And so it's probably a good idea for us to understand and be planning for that. You know, it's impossible to know for sure which direction. Are we going to get warmer? Are we going to get colder, more, more rain, less rain, extreme weather? We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. There are certainly predictions, but we can plan for you know, a little bit for all of those. We can plan for our climates getting warmer, plan for our climates getting colder and have, you know, some roots in the ground and some, some seeds in the ground that are going to protect us and hedge against those so that we can, when we're thinking long-term, we can be sure that we're gonna have something succeed no matter what happens. I think this is a really important issue. I'm kind of happy that we're we're covering it. This was, this was Mike's idea to, to cover this topic today, but as I thought more about it, I realized that you know this is going to be an important episode, yeah. So I hope we do it justice. So Mike, what do you think? What do you think about climate change adaptation? Like, what are some of, like the big picture things that you uh, that you think about when after what I just said? And then we can kind of go into the more nitty gritty techniques.
0: So I would say even before we get into some of the things you were talking about, we should put into perspective where we are right now recording this. We are currently recording this in July of 2021 when the Lytton, British Columbia wildfire recently happened. Very similar to the wildfire that occurred in Paradise, California. It's incredibly scary for people on the West Coast, not only of the United States, but also Canada now in 2021, but also in the Northeast, you know, in 2020. Maine had one of its most extreme wildfire years. Something that we should be thinking of with climate change is extremes.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great summation. And it makes me think of, you know, we talked in previous episodes and and kind of the whole point of forest gardening in general is to garden like a forest and, and to mimic some natural principles and And diversity is such a really important part of any ecosystem so that when conditions change, whether that's temperature or climate or precipitation, anything like that, when conditions change, there's a rebalancing of the ecosystem because if you don't have the plants or the organisms in the system, then there's nothing that can take advantage of that change. So by planning, like you were talking about, like a diversity of of species, that can benefit if cl- the climate moves in one way or another. Um, it kind of like the the word I use was hedge against, you know, some of those extremes because you're going to have something at least that's going to actually benefit from those changes like how often like in your garden do you see it's like a really great year for tomatoes but like not a great year for you know beans or something like that like they change it changes but if you were just to grow you know one thing you're going to have maybe a bumper crop but also maybe total loss of of everything so that's kind of the way I think of, of it like the diversity is a good way to to battle some of those extremes and some of the unknowns that are probably in our future unfortunately
0: Yeah, it has been incredibly scary in the past few years to anyone out there who is thinking that this is all natural. I I think to this point, you know, I find it hard to believe that anyone can be saying that the experiences that they've lived in their lifetime, whether you're 20 or 40 or 60, that, you know, the past 10 to 15 years have been normal. But beyond that, I want to touch upon specifically the idea of, Climate zones. We've touched upon it before in this podcast, but it's something that you really need to understand with this conversation going forward. So I am in USDA hardiness zone 6B. However, due to recent climate events, climate zones have been kind of out of whack. One year, you might have a growing season that lasts until January. And then a few years later, you might have your first frost happen in September. And so that's something to be very aware of in terms of just growing any sort of crop, whether it's, you know, cucumbers, or it could be something like gummy or some of the more uh, interesting perennial fruits and vegetables that we get into into this podcast. But Regardless, knowing what your climate zone is, is important. So I have a long growing season. Often the first frost that really is like a hard frost happens sometimes mid-November or December, but we can definitely grow cold hardy annual crops into January before they really die and winter hits us hard. And according to the charts or according to the USDA, we should be getting our first frost in October. That should be a huge call out in terms of like, wow, our climate is not exactly the way that it's been acting in the past 50 years, but it also is a benefit. We can adapt and we can grow crops later in the season, but we should essentially just take these things into account. So today I'm going to be talking about a lot of the things that are specific to me as a zone 6B slash 7A gardener or forest gardener. And if you are in Zone 8 or Zone 9, these things that I'm talking about today might not apply to you as much, but you should still take into account sort of the change in zone and the fluctuation of our climate as, a, as something that we can adapt to. So the first thing to think about is what plants to consider for growing out of zone. This concept of out of zone is generally described as a group of plants that you know, could be described as USDA hardiness zone eight, but you're attempting to grow them in zone seven, seven A or seven B. Seven A is the colder half of it. Seven B is a slightly warmer half of it, just on a five Fahrenheit degree change. So in, for me in zone six B or seven A, when thinking about growing plants out of zone, I'm often thinking about the importance of microclimates. And what microclimates really mean, like long-term are heat units and protection from winter wind. The thing that really kills plants, and I'm mostly talking about perennial plants, is wind in the wintertime. Cold wind will kill a perennial plant and everything that is sticking up above ground i'm not talking about the root structure but anything that's above ground that's in a sort of a a zone that it might not belong in let's say it's a tender perennial or it's a fruit tree that might be on the borderline of producing fruit in your area if a cold winter wind comes and sweeps by it it'll often defoliate the entire tree or kill the tree down to the roots or potentially even kill the entire tree and the roots might not produce any more green shoots the next year. So putting a tree that is in this sort of tender in between of zones in an area where it's protected from winter winds, usually on the south side of a fence or the south side of a structure or potentially on the south side of a windbreak can really keep it alive during the coldest winter months. Obviously this doesn't really apply for tropical locations, but hey, people in the tropics can grow just about everything. So this whole podcast really is you know, mostly, mostly talking about people who are in the um, northern areas of the world. The other thing that I mentioned, and I should touch upon more is, well, the other thing that I mentioned is heat units. Now, if you were to plant a fruit tree perhaps on the south side of a building, and let's say you're in a borderline zone like I am, like zone 6B, zone 7A, if you have a fig tree planted on the south side of a concrete wall or a stone wall or any sort of masonry, the heat units that it takes to ripen fruit will multiply significantly. So if you were to, it comes back to the same thing about like wind and cold. If you were to have that fig tree just planted out in the middle of a field, it might not ripen fruit. You could, you could have it survive every single year and grow back from its roots or grow back from wherever it died back to, but it might never actually ripen fruit because the heat units that it needs to produce the fruit that it normally would in a tropical or subtropical or even just like you know a temperate zone aren't met. So having a fruit tree next to a warm, microclimate inducing, whatever, it could be just like a cement, it could be any sort of south facing wall, really does it, it creates a huge change in terms of whatever harvest you can have. There are risks, you know, potential risks in cultivating plants out of zone, one being the very prevalent and recurring phenomenon known as the polar vortex in 2014. I know growers who Or, I shouldn't say I know growers, but there are growers who I have studied who were growing hardy citrus in Massachusetts, of all places, in Zone 5. They had satsumas and possibly citranderins. For anyone who's listening and is completely unaware of what these hardy citrus are, I highly recommend you check out Mackenzie Farms. Uh, Stan the Citrus Man, Stan McKenzie. I believe he's based in South Carolina and he grows a wide array of hardy citrus trees that are all hardy to about 5, 10, or sometimes like specific numbers like 12 degrees Fahrenheit. But in the right microclimate, they can and will survive in places as far north as Massachusetts, apparently. The person who I... I'm specifically thinking of, what he did was he wrapped his trees every year the same way that some people wrap their fig trees, and then he would put like water barrels within the the wrap. So the water barrels provided heat storage and provided a microclimate for the trees, which were just planted out in his front yard. So they got hit with winter wind, but they were in this little protected microclimate. Some other ones that are for the Citrus nerd of the North would be Shangsaw mandarins Citrange Citrange quats. I have one of those. I have a Thomasville Citrange quat. Also yuzu. There's a very interesting family based in New Jersey that is cultivating yuzu en masse and they have them all in pots, but they could be growing them in ground if they chose to It just probably would be more of a risk for them. They have them them in pots, and they bring them into their greenhouse when the winter winds come. But yeah, there's also the 10-degree tangerine, the Owari satsumas, Kimburo satsuma, satsuma mandarins, Myway and Nagami kumquats. Those ones are not as cold-hardy, I think. Orange quats, which are around hardy to about 10 degrees... I already mentioned the Thomasville exchange quad, that's one of the hardiest ones, I believe that once it's established it's hardy to about 5 degrees Fahrenheit, or maybe even zero. And the list goes on and on, there's, there's other ones, of course, the most famous is just the trifoliate orange, or bitter orange, poncerus. All of these would be grafted onto that as rootstock. There's also the citromello, which is a hybrid of pomelo and trifoliate orange. There's a few of those. There's a number of citromellos out there that you could find. The list goes on and on and on.
1: So when you're talking about uh, the south-facing wall, it makes me think about sun angles. And that's something that, you know, I didn't really have that, those goggles on when I was designing my food forest until, you know, a few years in after, you know, living in the the spot that I was for a year. So I could actually see, you know, it's... anyone who's, you know, studied sun angles throughout the year knows this, but, you know, maybe not everyone does in the, you know, if you're in a Northern latitude, the, during the winter, you're, the sun is going to be much more Southern, uh, and it's not going to reach Zenith, which is like where the sun is perfectly, you know, uh, above, above your head. It's always going to have that bias to the South. And, you know, in the, the deepest parts of winter the, there's going to be the most bias to the south and so um, i think it's important when you're thinking about microclimates to understand like well when thinking about microclimates that have to do with the sun in the winter time, this might be a warm pocket um, but in the summertime when there's not that sort of bi- bias to the south that actually won't won't be a warmer spot at all Uh, Which is actually a good thing, because typically you want a microclimate to be a bit warmer for your maybe subtropical plants or things that you're trying to push that might not otherwise survive. Uh, You want the microclimate to be a little bit warmer during the coldest parts of the winter, but you don't necessarily want that spot to also be, you know, a warm, warm pocket in like the hottest parts of summer, because that could, of course, like you said, kill, kill your plants. So I think it's important to, to consider, you know, your, your property and go out and observe your property at different parts of the year. If it snows in your climate to to kind of watch and see where the snow melts first, that's sort of like a, a nice trick. It doesn't always, it's not 100%, but if you notice that maybe by a tree line, you see all the snow melting first or by that southern facing wall or southwest or southeast. And that's like a good indicator of maybe where you want to plant your more, Frost sensitive or cold sensitive species. It doesn't mean that it's not going to get below freezing or, you know, very cold in those spots. It will, but that that will represent your best chance of, of that plant surviving. And it's it's worked for me over the years.
0: That's a very good point. And on the south side of my house, I have planted all of the borderline 6B, zone seven, maybe even zone eight perennial fruit bearing crops, knowing that they're going to be protected from the winter winds. But at the same time, for a decent part of the growing season, they are somewhat shaded out and the sun angles really do play a part there. Like they have the heat units to produce fruit, but at the same time during, especially in like April, the, they are decently shaded and then for throughout most of june they're shaded and then when the sun angles become really like just straight down the you know the sun is really high in the sky closer to the the solstice they get the most sun and i don't know so far it's it's a good point that you you brought up just you know you don't want them to be totally just baked in the sun especially with that extra added heat from the microclimate it's really sort of Uh, and in between. I don't know. I mean, the importance of microclimates is, is essential. If you're considering growing plants out of zone, you have to be aware that the polar vortex is something that is going to continue to occur. The earth's jet stream is wobbling constantly. It's just, it's not in its normal rotation. And the polar vortex keeps getting pushed farther south, as we saw in 2020 or 2021, it, you know, in Texas, where people who had fruit trees just totally got decimated.
1: That happened to a grower that I know in Kentucky. He, he had an amazing collection of, you know, American persimmon is pretty hardy, but he had American and Asian persimmons, like some of the cold hardy Asian persimmons and the hybrids between those two species. And he had the pretty much, I think even more so than in California, one of the most extensive collections of of persimmons in the country. And yeah, I think during the polar vortex, it, they all got wiped out all, but maybe one or two trees, you know, didn't make it. So, I mean, at least you can tell that those are the, those are the hardy ones, at least that that's a trial by fire, but yeah, I'm sure it happens all over the country. Anytime there's like a big cold snap that I don't know if it's a once in a century type of thing, or if it's going to be more often than that. I don't know enough about polar vortexes, vortices disease, maybe. <laughs> but I do know that like, whether or not it's a polar vortex or, or, you know, some other extreme weather event, like it's, it's good to keep that in the back of your mind. It's like, that doesn't mean not plant, you know, not try to stretch the limits of your climate. But, you know, remember that something like that could always happen.
0: Exactly, it, I guess uh, that grower really got the survival, you know, American persimmon, uh, or the Asian, cultivar. yeah, yeah, or the Asian persimmon yeah. cultivar of mm-hmm. surviving the. That would be that would be a pretty solid selling point.
1: I think it's uh, yeah. just I think maybe just the hybrids survive, like the Rosiankas and the Nikita's gift. I um, double check, but yeah, it's a, just a shout out to Cliff's Nut Orchard is the name of the the nursery. It's got a great selection.
0: That would make sense about the hybrids, but regardless, I mean American persimmons are also really tasty too. If I can give a shout out uh, to Triple Brook Farm, they have a non astringent American persimmon that is apparently delicious. I have yet to yet to taste there, based in Massachusetts, also. But whatever, this is a huge aside. Uh, <laughs> coming coming down to the basically the idea of climate change, you know, affecting the choices of what you grow. The polar vortex phenomenon is something to be aware of. It's it's probably not a century thing. I imagine it's going to happen at least once, maybe twice a decade. We, you know, 2014 was the big polar vortex that wiped out tons of people's crops. But then this past year in 2020, you saw the uh, jet stream dipping down into Texas. Texas, like, has never experienced the temps that it did in this past winter, I was in New England, warmer and happy and completely normal, just enjoying my normal like winter, whatever. And people in Texas were freaking out. They were, they were not okay. And all of the fruit trees in that area just probably got decimated. So something to consider is the cultivation of plants that you can frequently take cuttings from and overwinter. So in my climate, something I want to really think about is if I'm growing something out of zone, does it propagate from cuttings very easily? There are a number of plants that I know you cultivate as well, Ben, and I'm, I'm gonna, as soon as I'm done here, I want to hear about your thoughts on this mm-hmm. concept. You know, there are a number of plants that I cultivate that are more in the herbaceous perennial side of out of zone plants rather than the, you know, fruiting shrub or fruiting tree side of out of zone growing that I can take cuttings from and I can overwinter them in a greenhouse or indoors or even just overwintering them in mulch or whatever. They basically function as a backup in case something goes wrong with the perennial kale that I'm, you know, let's say the voles eat all of the perennial kale that I have growing. Well, guess what? I took cuttings and the sure. cuttings could be whole new plants. And I'm sure you have plenty to talk about in this regard when it comes to, you know, I mean, I, I know that you take your moringa and dig it out of the ground and put in, you know, so, so I'm interested in what you have to say.
1: Well, I mean, there, there's definitely a line between, stretching your your climate zone a little bit maybe one or two a half of a climate zone one climate zone difference and trying to grow something that's absolutely no way that you can keep alive in the ground without you know some serious protection which is what i what i do i mean i look at it as if i start it early i can get you know a good nine ten months of frost free weather if i start some of these tropical tree species or tropical herbaceous species indoors. And even if they do, like you said, a lot of these will die in the frost. Like I'm not under any false impressions that um, I can somehow protect them once they're in the ground, but I have strategies to propagate them so that I can continue to grow them every year. Now that wouldn't necessarily work for uh, a fruit tree. Like if you wanted to try to Grow, you know, a, a papaya or a mango or something, uh, because you know you could you could do it as a container. You could leave it outside and bring it in in the winter. And I know people who do that with citrus as well. But if we're talking about just sort of growing in the ground as part of our, our garden, like you like you do with your kale, you're you're going to be able to see uh, a yield from that the following year, even just just because you save those cuttings. So even if the mother plant dies. You've saved those cuttings, or you've saved those seeds. What I've done in the past is just a lot of experimentation. Without, I'm not a grower. I'm not trying to sell my produce, or I'm not relying on income from, from my produce. If it produces, great. If it dies in the winter, that's that's sad. But at least I know for sure that you can't grow it, in, you know, unprotected in this climate. So, you know, a lot of what I do is experimentation. But from that, you know, I found over the years that more often than not, like the plants don't read the books, right? Like if the plant doesn't know it's not supposed to grow in zone 6A, like that it's not quote unquote cold hardy, uh, it may actually survive. Maybe there was a mild winter or maybe, you know, I planted it into a microclimate or who knows, maybe it's just a certain cultivar of that species that tends to have a little bit more cold tolerance. Like it never hurts to, to experiment. That doesn't necessarily mean if you're a a grower or someone who's growing for market that you want to like plant out a bunch of kiwi in your area. If it's not, and you're not sure if it's hardy or not, I mean, that, that could be a pretty big expense. But if you're someone who's a gardener and likes to tinker, like, like I do, it's definitely fun to just basically try in in either direction. Like, like we were talking about things that are rated for a much higher, or, or I guess I should say much lower cold hardy zone or, and also a much higher one as well. I guess that's, that's my philosophy on it. But kind of going back to the idea on the microclimates, we, we touched a bit on, you know, what's normally discussed when it comes to microclimates, which is how do we grow something that is frost sensitive and frost, not fro- frost hardy, or maybe it's frost hardy, but it just, you know, if it goes, if it dips below negative five or negative 10, it's not going to come back. We've talked a little bit about that, like creating those microclimates with thermal mass or you know, figuring out the right sun angles for the winter to kind of bump it up a few degrees. And maybe even, we didn't talk about this, but maybe even planting close to bodies of water, that's another another technique. But maybe we touch a little bit on something that's less discussed, which is if climate change does in your region cause increase in temperature, a notable increase in temperature, you know, you're going to need strategies to to plant things where they can actually Survive that heat stress, additional heat stress, and that's a little bit less straightforward. It's less studied and less. It's not something I've observed quite as much, you know. Other than other than species and cultivar selection, which of course, you know, is the best way to to ensure that you're you're protected against additional heat stress. Like there's, you know, certain cultivars that, for example, if we're talking trees that need less chill hours. So uh, for those who aren't familiar, a lot of hardwood trees to uh, grow correctly and to leaf out in the spring, much less flower and fruit, they need a certain amount of units. We talked about heat units already, but there's also chill units. So maybe we, we kind of discussed the the other side of the coin where there needs to be a certain amount of days, certain amount of hours. Um, And then there's formulas for this. I don't exactly know how to, how to calculate it, but yeah, it needs a certain amount of cold and chilling during the winter for the tree to properly break dormancy it's almost like seed stratification if you're familiar with that but uh it's it's with the actual the branches and the buds themselves and so as your region gets warmer and you have less and less chill units you may find that a tree that you know was once really healthy might only you you might see green growth coming out of only half of the tree and the other half is like either kind of wimpy growth or is, is dead. You know, that's, that's something that, you know, you might have a very productive tree and now it's not producing and it's going to continue to produce less and less every year, which is the opposite of what you want. So of course the, the cultivar selection, I mean, there's, there's low chill versions of a lot of fruit trees, not necessarily nut trees. I'm not as familiar with uh, low chill and there's even ones that are marketed as, as no chill. I think uh, on one of our episodes, we talked a bit about that with uh, Adam growing in Hawaii. But that's definitely one consideration is, is if you're expecting more heat in the summer and more heat in the winter, meaning less chill, to select cultivars that can adapt to that and both on a cultivar level, but then also experimenting with new species that may have not been appropriate in your region historically, but five, 10 years from now might, might represent you know, some of your best chances of getting a good crop of fruit, fruit and nuts. But as far as the design of your system, to sort of ameliorate some of those heat stress. Let's see. So in the summertime, you have the north side of your house for for plants that don't need fruiting, that are more herbaceous in nature. I actually really like growing certain things on the north side of my house because I know that that's going to stay cool in the summer. It's not going to be baking in the heat. And you can even grow things like like raspberries and other, other fruit, other brambles will, will grow okay in the shade like that. But I usually try to focus more on the, the herbaceous plants. So you can use the opposite of what we talked about. So instead of growing in the South side, you can grow on the North side, but with the understanding that there's gonna be a lot less light available, but that's okay for, for some species of plants. I'm trying to think, Mike, do you have any other thoughts on colder microclimates to keep things from getting too heat stressed?
0: Oh, man, I have a lot of notes based on what you said. The plants don't read the books comment is insane. <laughs> that, should be the, that should be the name of our podcast. The <laughs> plants don't read the
1: books. <laughs>
0: but um, yeah, in terms of things to plant on the north side, I would say that hardy kiwi, especially not even hardy kiwi, but arctic kiwi is something that arctic kiwi is a species that I have been experimenting with, and it really doesn't like sun. It really doesn't like, really? I have it in what I thought was going to be a part sun location, but it ended up being a full sun location just because of winter wind damage on mm-hmm. canopy trees. And yeah, it is struggling. Whereas wow. the hardy kiwi and the quote unquote, Jenny, uh, well, you know, Jenny, the, being the cultivar name, fuzzy kiwi are doing fantastic. Arctic kiwi is, is a type of plant that comes from extremely extremely north almost like polar areas and is used to considerably less sun and yeah it really does well on like the north side of a fence we've talked about this before but i planted sun chokes and Jeru- uh, or sun chokes or jerusalem artichokes whatever you want to call them some people call them jay chokes i planted those on the north side of a barn which i saw on jonathan bates property in upstate new york shout out jonathan bates and i just copied him and that has worked out incredibly well it's incredible how many things will do very very well on the north side of something if they are an incredibly invasive or just really you know they really know how to proliferate so like jerusalem artichokes or sunchokes will take over your entire lawn if you plant them in full sun. So it's kind of a good idea to put them on the north side of something. Anything that you're thinking of as something that is like a little bit questionable in terms of, is it going to take over everything else? Like mint, for example, like I've been planting mint in a really dry full shade area under a sugar maple tree where the soil it's planted in, Has absolutely no nutrients and it's all rocks around it, but it does just fine. It it, it survives and it produces an incredible amount, despite horrible locations.
1: Just in terms of more uh, on the kind of colder microclimates, another thing that really consider, um, I don't know if you call this necessarily a microclimate, is you know really making sure that the plants that you do have in the ground are getting good access to water. So as temperatures rise. We're going to see, you know, the plants are going to need to transpire more and they're going to be losing more water in the hotter parts of the summer. So making sure that, you know, your soil is really good quality, uh, lots of organic matter. And also, I mean, there's, there's, you know, in terms of permaculture, there's lots of of literature out there on swales and directing water. It's not appropriate in every single climate and every context, but if there are ways to ensure that when there, if, if you have periods of Drought in the summer, that there are ways to direct any incidental rainfall towards the plants that you want that are maybe more sensitive to heat stress or drought stress. That's going to be something that's I think really important. I guess it's not necessarily like a microclimate, but it's a, a important thing to think about. Otherwise, you have to be out there watering your plants, you know, as temperatures start to start to climb up. So just that—that's the only only thing I was going to add in was just this this water component and making sure that that's. Part of the design conversation
0: well you know what they say the plants don't read the books but <laughs> you can and you should yeah <laughs> anyways so yeah one thing that earlier what you were saying is about sort of like the heat waves so like in the heat wave of 2020 and you know planting things on the north side to, to sort of survive those heat waves One thing that I was really looking into is sourcing seed from seed companies rather than just, you know, going to Johnny's or Baker Creek or some of these really larger seed companies, even the organic ones. I was looking to source seed from like San Diego, specific smaller seed companies that are in places where they are producing, let's say, let's say it's black beauty eggplant the eggplant that you can get just about at every seed company if you grow black beauty eggplant in new england from Chaz c heart seed co in weathersfield connecticut it's going to be a land race based off of weathersfield connecticut's climate well guess what weathersfield's climate has drastically shifted in the past few years so last year in 2020 I was like shit you know the 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 seeds and the plants that I've been getting have just been really stressed out from these 100 degree days or 90 degree days with no water no rain it's just been ridiculous so I, I started to think like where in the U.S. can I look to get really drought resistant versions of the same annual plants that I would normally get from the seed company that's literally like a mile down the road from me and I'm very fortunate to have a seed company a mile down the road from me I know that's very unusual but regardless in general you should be looking to the seed company that's very very close to you to provide you with a land race of crops that are you know most adapted to your climate zone but with climate change that has kind of it's kind of been thrown off this, you know, we don't, it's, it, it's very weird now. Elliot Coleman, his book was called The Four Season Harvest. He, when he was looking to grow a wide variety of things throughout the entire year in cold Maine, you know, frigid Maine, he traveled to France and asked himself, has someone successfully grown any sort of plants, whether or not they're herbaceous perennials, or annuals, or greens, whatever, out of the normal zone, or just have they grown them successfully throughout the year in really cold temperatures. And he traveled along that, you know, latitude, like the 44th parallel or something, and discovered that, in fact, you know, in France, there were people that were growing full veggie gardens in the cold winter along canals on the south side of these big walls where there's masonry and it was a little microclimate and the people in that area really didn't care they weren't eating the food but he went there and was just like wow like they can do it here so can I." so anyone can take a look at what is going on along the same parallel line in other parts of the world and see, okay, like maybe they're growing olives in whatever part of the world that's along that same line. Maybe we can do the same thing here. There's an island that's a part of Japan where it has sort of a Mediterranean climate and they're growing olives there, which is something that is insane. But we also have to be very aware just because a plant can grow in that area doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get a good harvest from it. And you have to, sort of use these design principles that Ben touched upon, and we should probably touch upon more to inform where and how you're going to plant everything.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really good, good point discussing the latitude issue versus the temperature issue because, you know, regardless of of climate change or climate destabilization, your latitude's always going to be exactly the same. And all around the world at the same latitude, the number of hours in the day of of light as far as I'm as far as I'm aware are going to be you know about the same and so if something can grow and specifically I guess we should say when it comes to perennial or really any fruiting species or flowering or fruiting species those are the ones that you know are really latitude specific because they tend to you know the flowering behavior of most most plants has to do with day length and they the day and night uh length and that's kind of what is the dial that just dis- where a plant decides whether or not to flower with whether or not it's in the right location if you have if you try to go avocados in tennessee or massachusetts as far as i'm aware not going to work not necessarily even if you can keep it in a warm environment if you keep it in a heated greenhouse it's not necessarily a temperature issue it's more of a day length issue uh same thing with
0: the they tried. Sorry to
1: interrupt. Oh, did they? They tried. Did it to work?
0: They well, no. They they tried that at Paradise a Lot, and it's one of the first videos that really turned me on to them. Mm-hmm. Was that they were trying to grow an avocado in the biodome, and yeah, I later met with Jonathan. He just yeah, it it did not work, and it, yeah, yeah as you said it had more to do with issues beyond the fact of keeping it in an environment that it you know it was warm enough for it basically.
1: Right, but I mean that's a bummer, but there's also by knowing that fact and and doing what you said, which is look at other places that that do match your latitude, you can sort of pick. Things from different climates that will still be able to produce you know if if the, the temperatures get warmer or colder so if you're right your climate might look a little bit more like some part of Northern China that can grow those particular types of figs or, or you know, quince or, or something interesting like that. But uh, yeah, same thing with chayote, which is a perennial, I guess you, you describe it, you can cook it kind of like a squash. It's a fruiting vegetable and it grows on a vine and you could try to grow it as an annual because it will totally be able to grow grow that way because it, the, the vine grows really well over the course of the season, but just will not flower because you need to shorten the day lengths to a point where people actually are able to only able to grow them by covering up their greenhouses with cloth to, to simulate longer nights. That's how you can sort of trick the plant into flowering. So there's all these these things that if you want to put into labor, you can, you can extend your, you're not really extending your climate zone, but you're able to grow outside of your climate zone. But to me, that sounds like a lot of work.
0: I totally hear you why don't you just describe your experience with with pineapple
1: guava sure well it's kind of funny um i used to work at whole foods in glastonbury connecticut and there would be all sorts of interesting tropical subtropical fruit that would come in and i would try every single one of them because i wanted i was just a goal i had to try everything and so i tried these little green they look like big stuffed jalapeno peppers they come in let's see i think Kind of more fall and winter time or if i remember correctly and uh, cut one open sure enough it smelled like guava and tasted it and i was floored it just had this like sweet and sour guava flavor i liked it better than eating a guava which usually is pretty sour and like it's good it has a nice smell but it's not that pleasant to eat this actually was like sweet it reminded me of some candy that i probably had growing up and was just really nice and so it quickly became one Maybe not like my top five, but I would say maybe my top 10. I just assumed that, well, you know, this this is a tropical fruit. And I learned a little bit about it, but I was like, I'll probably never be able to grow it, you know, unless I decide to move to the tropics. You know, I read a little bit more about that species, but kind of forgot about it until I went to a NAFEX meeting. And uh, anyone who's interested in fruit in North America should grow, should join NAFEX, which is the North American Fruit Explorers. And uh, met some really interesting people. Yeah, this one guy uh, who I met—I I won't mention his name—but quite the character. And of course, in the plant world, you meet all sorts of characters. But uh, yeah, the, 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 his story is for another night. But anyway, he invited me back as we were leaving the conference to check out his place. It was sort of on the way. He was living in Georgia, and he showed me his kind of extensive fruit collection. He was growing, you know, all sorts of things from the tropics in greenhouses, but also outdoors. And some things from the subtropics as well. And he had pineapple guavas. You know, that was the first time I had seen them in person. I never actually picked one before or seen the plant. And it's a beautiful plant. It's got kind of like light brown bark, kind of dark green leaves that are sort of waxy. And it's native to Brazil. It's also called feijoa, and so I think it's it's a popular fruit there. But yeah, I had no idea you could grow it in Georgia. And his house was only three hours south of my house, which three hours is a long, long ways. But I didn't see it that way. I was like, oh, if he can grow it, you know, within, within a long movie's worth of time distance from me, that's crazy. And I've always wanted to, to grow this plant in my yard. So why don't I give it a shot? And he offered me plants. He was a nice guy. And so I brought one back and decided to plant it in the ground. I think I tried to keep it in the container. I was like, well, it's probably not gonna survive too much longer, you know, it's a tree or it's a, it's a large woody shrub, I guess t- I should say. So I decided to plant it. And again, it's that space where the snow melted first. It was a Southeast corner of my house, kind of like a nook between the porch and the sidewall. And it was just kind of the perfect spots. And so I decided to plant it there. It grew well for a couple of years and didn't flower, didn't fruit. And so I was getting sort of nervous, but I love, I, I just love the look of it. It just had this like tropical look and it was just nice to, it was kind of fun to, to, to think that I could grow something from a completely different continent, which we do all the time with things from China and Europe, but like from South America, this really interesting South American shrub that was growing and just loving the spot that I planted for it. So it was kind of just a rewarding, rewarding shrub, even if I didn't, Get fruit from it, but sure enough, it was funny. I, I sold that house, but left that in the ground for the future owner. I'll of course let him know about it so that it didn't get like removed. When I went to the final time to return that key for that house and to the lock up to say goodbye to the house, I looked at that shrub and it was covered in these beautiful pink blossoms. I, I couldn't believe it. It was the first year that that happened after like maybe four years of it in the ground, and you know it was already two years old when i got it so i i just assumed that it wasn't going to flower and the climate again kind of like what we were talking about maybe like a day length issue or you know a sun sunlight issue and so it was covered with blossoms and i never went back to see if it fruited but i'm almost certain it would have they're self-fertile but even if it doesn't fruit which i don't know why it wouldn't but you can eat the flowers apparently the flowers are delicious and i i tried them uh, once I once I saw that and they were great yeah they're this like sweet floral floral flavor but of course you should definitely leave it for for growing the fruit but anyway I, I did some research after that and realized that it's a hardy plant even some cases of it growing in zone five and it's also interesting I don't know if this is the case in zone five but pineapple guava will also keep its leaves like for me at least it kept its leaves entire year throughout the winter and so it stayed this kind of beautiful ornamental shrub all year round. so there's a lot of reasons to try growing it and it's not invasive in any way it's definitely something that you should experiment with
0: could you just briefly sort of touch upon the what you what you mentioned to me before about how low the temperatures got
1: yeah i mean i had kind of recorded the low temperatures each year but my memory is a little fuzzy about when that dip happened, the, the coldest year that I can remember. And then when, you know, I had, when I was growing that plant, but I'm, I'm fairly certain it got well below 20 and it's probably close to zero while I had that plant. And I was really worried about it for the first couple of years. I think I put a sheet over it and know what I was doing. I think I just put like a bed sheet over and maybe some, like a tarp to protect it. But I, when I took it off, I checked on it throughout the winter and in the spring and saw zero signs of frost damage. All the leaves were still there, not brown. And I was looking at it like this thing is kind of bulletproof. So I took, took all this off, of course, and didn't put any protection back on for you know the rest of the time that I had it. And so maybe maybe it would have been more vulnerable for that first year or two if I hadn't protected it. But my intuition says it would have been fine either way. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it does have to do with with the protected space that I have. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a species that I, I recommend. Few, really anyone in North America to try to to try to grow, unless you're in like brutally cold, like North Wisconsin or something. Maybe maybe that would yeah. work.
0: There is something to say about the certain plants that really have been named as being of a certain hardiness rating and then it, it ends up that they're much more cold hardy. there needs to be a much larger conglomerate of people who need to keep pushing these unusual perennial vegetables in colder and colder zones especially in microclimates we need to start acting more as like stewards of the landscape to start experimenting with in-ground plants. One thing that I should I should continue to say when I was just, up in Barnstable and visiting Dave Skandura, he had a Chicago hardy and Vern's brown turkey fig in ground, not in a microclimate. I mean, aside from the fact that they're in a peninsula, the Cape Cod is literally like the perfect microclimate period. But, you know, it's just basically in a big field where maybe there's a windbreak like 150 feet away of large evergreen trees, which you know, is a contributor, but essentially these plants were not planted up against a large structure and they were maybe three to four years old, maybe five at the most, and just loaded with fruit. Apparently wow. they, died back. they died back the first year, but did not, you know, they weren't given any sort of wrap, no covering, no protection from the winter, they died back the first year. They got used to the climate, and they, I, I was amazed. I have a wow. Vern's Brown. I have a, I have, not, I don't have one. I have two Vern's Brown Turkey planted up against the South side of my house. And I was scared that they wouldn't come back. Now I'm looking at them. I'm like, like you guys are <laughs> going to do a mate, you know, like I, I was just like, oh my God, I'm going to be eating so many figs in like two years. And oh, I have several God. Chicago Hardee's planted around. I think I have like three, maybe and they're doing fine too and uh, when I visited Dave Scandura, I was just like so like you know how are these plants doing And it was just like well you know we don't do much you know we don't like so many people are obsessed with their figs they dig them up they like bury them they tuck them over they do there's like I think it has a lot to do with Italian sort of cultural history that protecting you know people would come from Italy come here bring their prized fig and then just just do everything they could to dote upon it and the more that you dote upon a plant the more or i I would say the the less resistant it becomes to like crazy weather so if you just if you just sort of like ignore or just kind of leave it be and if it survives it survives you know these these trees that i saw were just absolutely loaded with figs and i was blown away Anyways, figs are a, for the zone six grower and up, if you're zone seven, zone eight, zone nine, I'm sure everybody is growing figs in your area. But in terms of like pushing the zone limits, people could easily be growing Vern's Brown Turkey or Chicago Hardy or a large variety of other figs that will survive and come back every year in ground so long as they're planted up against the south side of a wall and not in an open field, essentially, yep. there's, there's uh, varieties such as like Sal's gene or Adriatic JH or Tacoma violet. There's, there's, there's a whole list of these cold hardy figs that are mostly of the Mount Etna variety, which are from, you know, from Mount Etna in Italy and they are in a slightly cold hardy area. Though all of those figs are, worth experimenting with in cold climates as cold as zone five zone six is really probably more where you're going to actually enjoy the fruit from them and even then like if you're in like an upland area in zone 6a you are you know that's that's a big difference from zone 6b or zone 7a in like a maybe microclimate or maritime area in the latter you're going to enjoy a lot more fruit so that's something to keep in mind in terms of other types of fruits i do want to touch upon herbaceous perennials just a tad but in terms of other fruits that you can enjoy anybody who's in zone six and has a large area that they can potentially plant a fruit tree on a south facing side i would highly recommend investing into a Russian hardy pomegranate tree. It does really need a south-facing wall, not only to produce the fruit, but also because they will not survive a winter in zone six without that protection. They will definitely die from winter wind. And that's something that it will say on the label, almost definitely. I mean, the fact that you can grow pomegranates usually a Mediterranean fruit you know something that's growing in Israel normally you can grow it in New England that's pretty cool another thing to touch upon is the hardy citrus or trifoliate orange Ponsiris trifoliata I already touched upon cold hardy citrus a bit earlier in the podcast episode today but maybe we can do a little bit of a deeper dive so the trifoliate orange It's hardy to zone five, depending on the microclimate you choose, or depending on the seed that you grow it up from, or clone that you purchase. One thing that is interesting about hardy citrus is that you can grow a hardy trifoliate orange, which normally produces a fruit that is very not edible. The thing that you'd be using it for is basically the zest. You know, you can use the zest of the orange peel in a culinary fashion, but the orange itself is not not very edible. One thing you can do is you can grow that trifoliate orange and once it's established, you can cut it back and then graft it, or you can not cut it back and then just bud graft it, whatever. But you can graft it with several other cold hardy varieties of very interesting cold hardy citrus that are not very well known and will totally survive in a microclimate in zone six. Zone 7, definitely, maybe even Zone 5. These fruits are not very well known, like, at all. And one of, the, one of the most popular ones is yuzu, which is a Japanese fruit. You can definitely, you know, Google yuzu and get a million different results. That's something that has become very, very, very popular in, you know, like, the New York fancy restaurant scene, but also there's, there's other fruits that are even more tasty, like the Thomasville citrangequat, or potentially even types of citramello, which are more of like a hearty grapefruit, like the Swingle citramello, or the Morton citramello. There's just a lot of choices that you can sort of delve into in this level of cold, hardy, experimental grafting on top of the hardy citrus rootstock.
1: I'll add in here uh, something that I always wondered about when I was learning about grafting, which is that, you know, for all intents and purposes, I'm, I'm sure there's some exceptions to this rule, but the hardiness level of the scion, so at all those, those, the, those uh, hybrids you mentioned, the hardiness of that scion will remain the hardiness of that scion and the hardiness of the rootstock Will remain the hardiness of the rootstock. Uh, there may be some influence of, of the roots, a hardy rootstock onto the scion, but for all intents and purposes, you probably should consider, you know, if something is a very sensitive and not cold hardy species or hybrid, just by grafting it onto a hardy rootstock, you're not necessarily changing the hardiness rating of it. And of course, if, if you're familiar with grafting and, and plant propagation, you might know that already, but that's something that I wondered about for a really long time.
0: Thank you for that. I will say that I have heard of the various strange citrus that I've mentioned surviving when, let's say like it was grafted to the rootstock of a hardy citrus when it was just a baby. I've heard of these specific varieties, not dying back in like sub zero temperatures and temperatures they shouldn't survive in when they're really, really, really established plants. So let's say they have, you know, I mean, you have to think that if you keep any of these plants I've mentioned in a pot for like five or, and I'm saying like an enormous pot for like five or 10 years plus, and then you plant them in ground and they're so incredibly established, That is a much hardier plant than potentially something that's the diameter or the the width of its trunk is only a few inches wide. But Ben's point about the scion dying back versus the rootstock surviving is very important. All of the varieties of hardy citrus that I mentioned are not nearly as cold hardy as the trifoliate orange, which is why they use it as rootstock. The other varieties are usually pretty cold-hardy depending on the scenario that you plant them in. But during a polar vortex event, for example, like back in 2014, or most recently, like what happened in Texas in 2020, in that scenario, what would most likely happen is, yes, all of the grafted varieties would die and the rootstock that you had, the trifoliate orange, would live on. And then you would have to re-graft onto that plant. So this is something to consider when you're thinking about climate change and the way that you're going to navigate the next several years. It's like, do you really want to invest in these plants that are potentially going to be plants that you could never grow in this climate before because of climate change? Or should you rather invest in plants that you know will 100% survive the crazy climate that we're going to? Be living through, you know, plants like sea berry, also known as sea buckthorn, or hascaps and honeyberries. Those are hardy to like zone two.
1: Yeah, I, you read my mind. I just wanted to talk about that, like thinking in the opposite direction. If things start to get colder and and you know more of these polar vortex events and other cold snaps. Like what, what can we plant to prepare for that direction too? Cause it, depending on what region you live in, you, you might be experiencing that more than warmer temperatures. So yeah, sea buckthorn is like a perfect example of that, right? Like something that's nitrogen fixing and fruiting and very healthy, but I don't know exactly. Maybe you might know the cold hardiness level, the rating of you said two, I think that's, that's really impress- impressive. I know they grow in like parts of Russia and Siberia where, you know, uh, the the temperatures get pretty extreme. So you can be pretty sure that they'll also survive in parts of North America. And so those are the examples, the ones you just, the ones you mentioned, but also, you know, if you live in like the southern part of the US where like apples aren't necessarily a very commonly grown crop, because again, it's the chill hour issue with not enough chill hours and also maybe too much humidity and long hot summers just aren't, aren't great for growing apples you know that's that's another species that you know you may want to consider pushing the envelope a little bit to have at least one or two of those trees because if your region does get a lot colder you'll have those genetics at hand
0: yeah the uh seaberry and i also i think the hascaps it's and i could be wrong but i, I saw something recently that you know, honeyberry might be as cold hardy as like zone one or certain varieties of it. I don't, I'm wow. not entirely sure. Um, don't quote me on that. That could be wrong. But I remember seeing something that I was just like, how in God's name is any fruiting plant like <laughs> making fruit in zone one? That's like, what even is that? But yeah, sea berry itself, I can say without a doubt, certain varieties of sea berry or sea buckthorn are hardy to zone two. You should also recognize that this is a plant that is incredibly thorny you know, it is nitrogen fixing. It does create a giant tree, but also to harvest it, you have to chop entire sections of the tree down and then freeze them and then shake the branches so that all the fruit comes off of it. It's not entirely as easy as just like picking an Asian pear off of your Asian pear tree. Ah,
1: I didn't know that. I didn't know it was that labor intensive.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have, uh, I don't know. I have four to six varieties of sea berry in the very wet area of the back 40 of the property that I'm that I'm at right now. And I have one that's called Mary Seaberry, which is, quote unquote, the thornless variety. Another thing you have to recognize is that you have to have male and female varieties to, to get, you know, fruit. Mary is a, quote unquote, thornless, which really never means thornless. It just means less thorns variety of the female cultivar. And it, it does have significantly less thorns than some of the other female varieties I have. And to be honest with you, I don't see myself ever harvesting like any fruit from it ever. It'll just probably be like an ornamental tree in my landscape because it Mm -hmm. isn't, all of them are incredibly thorny. And also visiting edible landscapes, Dave he just said like, yeah, man, I haven't harvested a single fruit off that tree. The birds just get everything. So Birds really and and like you know, and how are you going to go to go out of your way to net or cover trees that are already super thorny and really hard to harvest from in the first place to save the fruit from it? It just seems like a lot of work.
1: I wonder how Ben Falk does it. Uh, He, I follow him on Instagram, he posts these pictures of sea berry harvest, and I, I can't recall, I thought he was like shaking them off onto a tarp. Yeah,
0: that's exactly what he does he does he does the shaking method but that's after he freezes them and in terms of like probably the birds not getting them it's because that dude has the entire you know he has the largest sea berry orchard in the entire northeast in vermont and he shakes them onto the tarp after he you know freezes them so he actually and,
1: removes the limbs off of all these yeah
0: uh, you, if freeze. you if you were to if you were to look up just you know ben fox seaberry harvest you would find him uh with a giant set of pruners just pruning back the trees really heavy and then taking the limbs that he pruned and beating them onto a tarp after they've been frozen which is wow
1: wow i didn't know that
0: yeah so seaberry like so that that's something to keep in mind i guess is that with these very cold hardy i mean that's not true of honeyberries at all but sea buckthorn, at least you know, when it comes to some of the really resilient crops, they have these sort of uh, unique facets, but we've gotten kind of off of the tangent here. I do just want to quickly touch upon the herbaceous perennials that I've been experimenting with in zone six, zone seven borderline. One very cool perennial, I first discovered it in around the world in 80 plants is rock samphire and i picked it up from logies it got absolutely decimated by bowls but then grew back from its roots which i thought was really cool and is now very happy i put it it's it's usually like a maritime plant and i put it in a very sandy very dry area and it did pretty well it's you know something that probably needs that microclimate little rocky zone for the roots to survive the winter, it's maybe a zone seven plant, but it's worth experimentation. It is an edible perennial. Some people will know marsh samphire, but both marsh samphire and rock samphire are some herbs that are really rare and cool and something that needs to be cultivated more amongst uh, you know the experimental gardeners uh, of, of our era. Pineapple sage is one that I tried to uh, overwinter I planted it in ground in the fall and it did not survive. However, it is a zone seven plant that I've heard other people have planted as cold as zone five and the right microclimate have overwintered it, but they've planted it in like a basically concrete jungle area, like, you know, on the, on the South side of a firehouse where it's all brick and asphalt and it overwintered every year, as perennial there. So it just- Great hummingbird you know, plant too. Yeah, that, that, well, actually I don't know if in that climate it grows to be that size that it can attract the hummingbirds, but in any case, it probably does. But it just goes to show you how far like the microclimates can go to take a plant that usually is not cold hardy to, so long as its roots survive, like yeah, it'll come back. Same thing with rosemary, there are two varieties for zone six growers to, to check out Madeline Hills Hardy and quote unquote ARP, which is uh, some guy just discovered it in like ARP, Texas. And for, for Rosemary, every single plant that you can buy of these two varieties is a clone, AKA a cutting or a division taken from the original plant that was, you know, either bred or just stumbled upon and has been shared throughout the entire Contiguous United States in somewhat cold climates, which is really crazy. You know, like no seed grew these rosemaries.
1: That's a cultivar that was was sold. I worked at a a retail garden shop, and yeah, there was that was like the predominant cultivar. Uh, was all ARP.
0: Yeah, ARP is the one that I have been experimenting with the most. I had Madeline Hill and ARP overwinter, survive you know zero degree temperatures without any sort of microclimate but we also had a crazy crazy like level of snowfall and it was a big bowl year and so the bowls i like in february saw that my arp had survived and was completely fine and then two days later saw that it was cut in half by a bowl like chopping it at the base
1: <laughs> oh, that, very sad
0: So that's something to keep in mind with, uh, you know, all of these plants that you're going to have on the south side of buildings is that it also does create amazing bull habitat sometimes, I guess.
1: All right. We should probably wrap this episode up. There's a lot in here. Jam-packed.
0: Yeah, this has been a jam-packed episode for sure. I would say to all of our listeners, just good luck with all of your overwintering and growing out of zone strategies and please reach out to us if there's anything that we missed you know uh we the 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 books are not telling the truth and the plants do not lie
1: that's that's a great great quote to end on we'll put that on our first t-shirt when we sell it (laughs) in our our merch store All right. Well, um, thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, like Mike said, good luck growing. And I hope you got some interesting uh, advice and information from this episode. And we'll we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.